You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to a new episode of the Today in Manufacturing podcast. I'm David Manti, and with me today is Anna Wells, and replacing Jeff Ranke this week is Andy Zoll. Andy, welcome back. Hey, thanks. It's good to be here. Replacing. Hey, it's good to see you. Oh, yeah. sorry. Well, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> Auditioning for the role of Jeff Ranke is Andy's all. We're the editors of manufacturing.net, industrial equipment news, and design and development today. And we each have about 15 years experience covering our respected industries. Every week, we cover the five most popular stories in manufacturing and the implications they might have on the industry going forward. Before we get started, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You could also help us out a lot by giving the email or giving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. Finally, if you want to email one of us, you can reach us at Andy, David, or Anna at IN.com. You can also reach Jeff at IN.com if you want to say you missed him. Just put email the podcast in the subject line. Uh, Anna, how are you doing this week? I'm good. I'm feeling uh, excited about the show this week. We got a lot of really nice fan mail, actually, this week. Yeah, a special, uh, special thanks to uh, people watching and listening, Kat, Mark, Jeremy, and Jim, and everybody else that reached out this week. We really do appreciate it. We do still have some Today in Manufacturing t-shirts, so if you want to reach out, uh, we'll make sure to get those in the mail to you. Um, Andy, have you picked up a Today in Manufacturing t-shirt yet? Um, no, I... Uh I'm rifling. Well, I'm trying to rifle through that drawer a little bit, searching for the the lone medium in there, and I don't think I found it yet. I don't think there is one. Yeah. So when we were uh, purchasing for our readership, we didn't know that we had to go under large. No. (laughs) I mean, that was mostly for me. That was mostly for me. For the next order, just uh, keep me in mind. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, let's jump into our first story this week. Lawsuit says Amazon liable for crash that paralyzed man. Anne's Rana working on it, has filed a lawsuit that says Amazon is liable for injuries he sustained after he was hit by an Amazon delivery truck. Amazon claims it's not legally liable because the driver did not directly work for the company. This is where it gets tricky. The accident happened in March when the Amazon delivery van hit Rana from behind. The 24-year-old driver was paralyzed as a result of his injuries. Amazon says that the driver, despite wearing Amazon uniforms and driving a van covered in the company's logo, worked for Harper Logistics, a delivery service, uh, a delivery service partner that Amazon uses to make deliveries. It's not just the uniform, but drivers are also required to use the Flex app, which monitors deliveries and worker performance. And the company also has cameras and other hardware installed in the delivery van. Anna, it seems like they're an Amazon employee. Up until the point it becomes a liability case. Yeah, I mean, it does seem like that, right? Um, mm-hmm. I mean, this is obviously not the first time that Amazon's driver monitoring system has come under fire. Uh, it was widely reported last year about delivery drivers that were feeling compelled to urinate in bottles. Mm. Um, some even defecate in plastic bags not in order luck. to meet delivery quotas. Exactly. I know. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the heart of it, apparently, was this driver monitoring app. Um, last year, Vice reported that drivers were being compelled to sign these biometric consent forms um, in order to keep their routes, which allowed the company to track in these vehicles kind of what they're doing. Mm. All onboard activities. Um, and at the time that this uh, incident or these incidents were occurring with like the lack of access to bathrooms and bathroom breaks, um, the Guardian reported that Amazon knew that its drivers were peeing in bottles based mm-hmm. on a memo that was issued asking them not to. <laughs> so I don't know, you know, like everyone's talking about 
we always talk about slippery slopes on the show. Mm-hmm. Jeff the most. Jeff, yeah, right, yeah. Right. Um, he's probably somewhere right now talking about a slippery slope. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If I know Jeff. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one seems like a pretty steep slope, maybe like covered <laughs> in melted butter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like it's really hard. It's hard to argue against an unwritten expectation for insane levels of productivity, whether that's a cultural thing or just like. I don't know if there's like no real proof of like a clear directive. Right. Mm -hmm. But in this case, it's documented what Amazon expects. And I think it's going to be hard to argue that it's not Amazon pushing these punishing delivery speeds. You know, they're using this app. Um, It, I feel like these are Amazon workers at the end of the day, right? I mean... Yeah, I mean, especially the crash happened. The van was allegedly going about 68 miles per hour in a 55 zone when he hit the car and sent it into another lane when it was struck by another vehicle. I mean, Andy, I feel like a reason he's speeding is because he has impossible quotas to meet. Um, That would probably not be an unreasonable assumption. I mean, 68 and 55 is not crazy fast. It's not... I mean, we all drive on the belt line. I mean, so, um, but I, I just can't get over how not good a look this is. Now, liability in civil cases, I'm not a lawyer, but that's, you know, a tricky subject. It can be split in some cases. So I'm sure they're just looking out for their interest in court here, but it's not a good look for you to go to court for them, this person who's paralyzed and say, uh, this is not our fault, even though it's our name on the van, our contractor we picked our uniform on the guy. Like mm-hmm. it's just, you know, how they hash this out in court is fine, but in public opinion in that space, it's just really a bad look. Whenever they come to your door, do you ever think that they're employed by anyone other than Amazon? Um, it has not occurred to me to ask which subcontractor they work for. No. Well, I just, I just mean, yeah, oh, everything no, you're yeah. like, no, you're uh, absolutely right. you know, uh, we have a, uh, distribution center right by our, by our house and they've pretty much commandeered the gas station next to it. And it's just lined up with Amazon vans that are all pulling in and out of the Amazon warehouse. And really up until this situation, I never thought they worked for anyone other than Amazon. Yeah. So I also wonder now, and if this is why my dog goes crazier when the Amazon guy shows up mm-hmm. rather than the postal worker, because he re- is reeking of his own urine and feces. <laughs> but maybe not. That Yeah, that might <laughs> might be a reason. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know where to go with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so... The other thing I was thinking about, regardless of how my dog responds to the Amazon delivery truck, right. is that this reminds me of like the gig economy gone wrong. Exactly. And that's, I mean, that's an excellent point. And I think you have to look at like who's driving this train. Mm-hmm. Clearly, it's Amazon. I mean, if you looked at something that happened with an Uber driver mm-hmm. and it was related to the app or it was related to some quota or whatever, like, you know, that's a, a, a third party employee of Uber. You're seeing all this, these lawsuits in California, especially right now around what responsibilities these parent companies have over gig workers. And more and more, at least in California, they've been siding against Uber and right. Lyft and saying, no, 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 you have a responsibility to pay, pay a fair wage. You have to follow these laws. You have to support them, treat them like they're employees and not contractors um, with an eye on stemming in some of the exploitation that is occurring there. Mm-hmm. Um, I could see this in the same light as that, you know, um, easily. And to Andy's point, yeah, I don't know how this will 
you know, if is this enough to win a lawsuit? I don't know, but it is pretty compelling to see them in that Amazon uniform in an Amazon truck using that Amazon app. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, Andy, do you think that what has gone on with Uber and that company's quote independent contractors might foreshadow what could happen to Amazon here? I mean, every every jurisdiction is different. Every every court case is different, but. I mean, it's. I mean, it's not just the the ride sharing, and it's. I mean, everything is kind of devolved into contractors. It's mm-hmm. cheaper mm-hmm. in any number of industries to just kind of, you know, outsource for lack of a better word. These, you know, rather than pay people, you just have a, a contractor who does it. So it's this has been decades in the making, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I guess that's that was my point with that basically. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I don't well, know where to take that there. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, this no. is not a new phenomenon. I and guess, yeah. One of the points that you said is that it's, you know, it's not crazy to go 68 and a 55. And the lawsuit argues argues that it was Amazon who forced drivers to rush to the point that it was unsafe. And I mean, I wonder if that is still unsafe if he was just going with the flow of traffic. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm not sure about the the particular instances. I can't. It's hard to imagine he was going with the flow of traffic when you end up rear-ending somebody. But yeah, yeah, understood. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I guess we'll see what else comes out with this case. I know that we'll wind up covering it again. Mm-hmm. All right. <clears throat> Our next most popular story this week: factory workers file complaints after being quote treated like animals. Employees at a refresco bottling factory in Wharton, New Jersey, are angry. And workers recently filed federal complaints with OSHA to report unsafe conditions. In June, employees voted to form a union following some 18 months of organizing after reports of low wages, minimal benefits, and sexual harassment. However, after the vote, Refresco, the largest independent bottling corporation in the world, filed a legal appeal against the move to form a union. The company recently held a rally to try and get the company to begin negotiations with their union, or the employees recently held the rally. And on top of that, almost 250 workers reported issues with the plant. One lead machine operator said, quote, we are treated like animals. Other complaints to OSHA included standing in pools of chemical water, seeing sewage on the floor during a shift, minimal to no time off, understaffing, lack of adequate machine operation training, and potential hearing loss. There were, <clears throat> there were also two reports of fires in the last two months, and not only did the fire alarms fail to go off, but Anna, the fire department, wasn't even called either. What is happening here? All, all bad. No, um, it seems like no. It's just a look from the outside mm-hmm. looking in, but it seems like the company might be taking advantage of its workers. I'm not certain. Yeah, there's clearly uh, just this overhanging like animosity between um, management and the workers here, and it, that's been documented. That's not for me, but Correct. like I read an article published in. October, and I apologize, I can't remember who ran it, but it was about how this union was formed mm-hmm. and how much money Refresco actually spent trying to quash union sentiment in the plant. And it all started from what sounds like a spontaneous protest that was related to the company's lax approach to coronavirus protocols, mm. um, ignoring worker symptoms, refusing to do contract tracing, refusing to shut down, stuff like that. When the company workers started trying to organize, 
um, which I think was on the momentum, kind of on the back end of this. Um, it was reported the company posted anti-union flyers and put workers through what's been described as mandatory anti-union meetings that were presented as informational sessions, sessions teaching immigrant workers about U.S. labor law. Oh, mandatory propaganda. Right. So, um, and the, the report said that the company tried to basically exploit the ethnic and linguistic differences of the workers to sow doubt and confusion among immigrant workers. So mm. real, real nasty stuff. And then, um, so when the unionization was established, it was a big win, even bigger because this was predominantly an I- immigrant workforce, which I think that's a group that's notoriously been less likely to stand up and yeah, speak up, you know, rock for the boat. Yeah, better pay conditions, you know. Mm-hmm. So to see Refresco continue to push back, and I think, um, uh, you know, the workers, because Refresco has filed this appeal and refuses to recognize the union, they're kind of in this limbo right now. Mm-hmm. And then to hear about all these other horrifying, dramatic details about working conditions, like, it's just a really sad story. I don't know. It just yeah. like, it made me depressed reading about this, just uh, how awful it would be to work there. And, you know, you think like people are in a good position right now, potentially to change jobs, but man, mm-hmm. what is going on here? Well, like you said, it's they're primarily Latin American immigrants. I think that's why they're being taken advantage of. But Andy, one employee told the Daily Record, we're asking for basic things. And I tend to agree when they just don't want to stand in chemicals or work next to sewage anymore. Uh, that would be a, a basic uh, worker protection issue that you would uh, you would lobby for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but this this is these particular. This laundry list of things is particularly egregious, mm-hmm. but but this is also a, a PR volley in this labor fight, and it's not not completely unreminiscent of things we've seen in the food sector, particularly the food sector, but in other places too. Um, over the past months, years, you know, workers, um, either from uh, the perspective of coronavirus protections or just the realization that you know consumer demand is there, they have. Uh, more power now in the labor market mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. they have seemingly in decades. Um, we, we've seen this kind of thing over and over again. Kellogg's, um, Frito-Lay, there was a messy strike there over people working, I can't remember yeah, how many 70, hours, 70, week, some yeah, insane, yeah, some insane weeks, threshold. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it exemplifies, uh, this episode I think exemplifies maybe how workers are realizing their power, but also maybe you know they're in a position to say, "Hey, this these kinds of treatment of us, it's not okay. We're fed up. We can do something about it now." Well, it seems like it's definitely escalating. It's you know trying to form a union, fighting against the union, uh, not recognizing the union, filing two hundred and fifty complaints with OSHA. I mean, that definitely seems like a lob back at the company. Yeah, and I think to Andy's point, like you know, the timing is good for pushing back. But I think this story kind of illustrates how difficult it still is, you know, mm-hmm. for some of these workers to gain any traction in these fights. Like they're really up against a lot of money. You know, if if a company is is has enough uh, <laughs> initiative to to get try to ferret this out and not yeah. not respond and not work with it, they have a lot more money, a lot more resources to try to do so. And uh, you know, for these workers who have like really kind of tried to bust bust through and make this work. It's, it's still not working. One of the things that I found interesting is, uh, did you notice what 
initially got them to start working on a union is the attendance system that penalized workers for getting sick during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And that just, I mean, of all times to not get hardcore about sick days. I don't know. Maybe sometimes the hardest thing to do is read the room, I guess. (laughs) True. Well, Refresco is, uh, a Dutch-based transnational company with production facilities in Europe, the United States, Canada, and Mexico. So I got to put on the Jeff hat for a second and be like, well, everyone's got to be careful here because, you know, if the employees start asking for too much, we definitely know that they got other places they could go with these products. And I mean, I think that's, uh, you know, a realistic flex that a transnational company has. You know, they don't necessarily need Wharton, New Jersey. Yeah, but I would take care of the chemicals and the fires and stuff first before you start saying start <laughs> you, you're for asking for too much. I'm moving to Canada. Yeah, and you know one thing that we talk on the show talk about on the show a lot is how you know as a consumer you can also make choices as a result. Uh, you know to kind of share your opinion on it. Yeah, that's true. I've been voting with my wallet against Arizona iced tea for my entire life. <laughs> well, uh, same. Same with Tropicana juices, but the company also bottles body armor for Coca-Cola, Gatorade for Pepsi. And I mean, I think when people see stories like that, like this, related to brands like that, they do make decisions with their wallets, even if it is for a lifetime. Yeah, Andy, what's it going to take to get you to stop drinking body armor for Coca-Cola? I uh, just am not familiar with that particular brand name. Mm. Um, That's the first I'm hearing of that. Yeah, I think that... What we cover, I mean, this is obviously in the news, but it also, you know, increasingly every week, every year tends to get lost in the wash. So mm-hmm. whether they can keep up this kind of public pressure to turn that and make the company feel it in their wallet, we'll, we'll have to see. But um, as far as relocating to a place where you couldn't make your employees stand in chemicals, I mean, I don't think what Europe, Canada, I mean, I don't think that's going to other know. states like I know things vary state to state but i don't think that's allowed anywhere so i mean that's they'll have to clean it up a little bit yeah yeah um and i body armor i actually know very well because it uh one article was written about how it helps women feel better during pregnancy so we had a shelf dedicated to body armor did it work Mm. (sighs) made her happy made me happy all right worked yeah worked just fine that sounds like it worked beyond that not sure all right Moving on to our next story this week. Electrician ordered to pay $481 million for scam. On Tuesday, an electrician in California was ordered to pay $481.3 million in restitution for his role in a $1 billion Ponzi scheme. 46-year-old Joseph Bayless posed as an engineer to help cover it up. On top of the restitution, he was sentenced to three years in federal prison. Prosecutors say he was hired by DC Solar to pose as a licensed engineer to inspect new mobile solar generator units mounted on trailers. The company marketed the generators from 2011 to 2018 as an emergency power resource for cell phone companies, NASCAR events, and other uses. The generators never made money, and early investors were paid with funds from later investors. That's the Ponzi scheme. Mm, That's how it works. Yeah. The company stopped building the generators altogether. And at least half of the companies claimed, uh, and half of the companies claimed 17,000 generators never existed. 
Bayless signed off on thousands of reports in a two-year span saying the generators had been inspected and tested. He was paid about $1 million for the effort. So, Anna, just about a $480.3 million swing for him then. Yeah, you almost feel bad for this guy for a second, um, being like a corporate shill for these hucksters, but he like... um, (laughs) Then, then you hear that he was paid a million dollars. That restitution money is a never coming. <laughs> no, um, and it's understood that it's yeah. you know owed by all defendants as this yeah. like restitution pool. But could you imagine and, that verdict coming down? Oh God, yeah. But yeah. the well, the CEO or the founder, or whatever Jeff Karpoff, he mm-hmm. was. If you look at some of the the amount of money that he pulled out and mm-hmm. spent, on oh, we'll crazy. Get yeah, okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um. Anyway. So I was curious to know how the interview process went for this because he was described as an electrician that was hired to <coughs> pose as an engineer mm-hmm. um, and participate in this fakery, I guess. So uh, from the beginning, the yeah. out, you know, like from the onset, he knows that he's in some sort of shady business. Well, I was just it, it was funny to me to imagine that like that it was like they put the the job posting on Indeed or something <laughs> and then just like a regular dude comes in interviews and they're like, all right. I need to level with you. No, so I did some digging and found out, I found the story in the Sacramento Bee that details this actually. And so Jeff Karpoff, the owner of DC Solar, who was sentenced to 30 years in prison. Mm -hmm. um, And this guy, Joseph Bayless, were high school buddies. They like met in shop class. Um, And Karpoff was apparently quite clear with him and told him to buy a burner phone and start scraping these VIN stickers off so they could perpetuate the the scam. So he got like in deep, obviously. Um... I guess the reason his sentence was so much lighter than his bosses, which was like 10 times, in fact, Mm -hmm. despite his integral role in this, was that Bayless was the one who stepped forward to cooperate first. So he um, kind of sang at the end and his attorneys tried to characterize him as a mope. They actually used the word mope. Oh, no. This mope (laughs) who was suddenly made to feel rich and important and basically that he was taken advantage of. which I don't know. I mean, maybe, but like, because he and it, when he was on trial, I think at his uh, sentencing, he basically said, like, I'm a despicable human being. I, you know, he was very like repentant. Who knows who that plays to or if that's genuine or not. But his buddy, Jeff Karpoff, like, like I had said or alluded to earlier, he was the one who was really spending this money. And he, his wife is actually facing like 15 year potential sentence for the lavishness of this so i don't know this this guy being paid a million dollars actually doesn't feel as um insane when you look at some of the other parties here that Mm -hmm. were also to blame andy your thoughts on this mope getting three years i mean this mope was clearly not the ringleader so and again he's facing a well not him but it's in in this press report it sounds like he's facing a $400 million tab, which is almost worse than the th- whatever decades you could, because the decades, God willing, you could pay. You're never paying the $480 million. Right. Anyway. Um, you would rather go to prison for 30 No, years I'm just saying it's more likely. File bankruptcy. Yeah. It's more likely you could fulfill the terms of the prison sentence than the $480 I million tab. I see what you're tab. Yeah, yeah, got it. <laughs> just, um, can you imagine like your check being garnished and it has what was garnished and what's remaining? <laughs> I... Oh God! <laughs> I wonder what the number is. Where if you hear it and what you owe, you pass that. You don't even care. Yeah. Like three hundred million. Keep going. I don't yeah, care. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, a billion. Um, Let's do a billion. Yeah. Okay, round it up. Yeah, I like this 
scheme because it seems like well it seems like usually in ponzi schemes like the madoff scheme it's just like a pure just investment scam they're just mm-hmm. like oh give me your money i'll make it whatever and they just keep it's finance guys and they just keep going and going and going this company seemed like they actually like made generators and then mm-hmm. figured it was easy to just scam people out of their money like oh this is easier than actually like making a product that works and like being good at it like we'll yeah. just do this and we'll use it to buy Burt Reynolds 78 Firebird. I saw that, that too. What it was? Yeah, they auctioned <laughs> off Burt Reynolds 78 it was like a Trans Am Firebird or mm-hmm. something. Yeah. And um it was pretty cool. So did Karpov or Bayless get the uh, Firebird? No, Karpov. Karpov. He, he got, got like That's why he got 30 years cuz he got all the cool stuff. Yeah. yeah, he got like 150 something rare vehicles that he bought during his tenure at DC Solar. <laughs> yeah, 32 properties, him and his wife. 32 mm. properties, 150 luxury cars. A subscription to a private jet service, a semi-pro baseball team, a NASCAR race sponsorship, and a suite at the new Las Vegas Raiders Stadium. Why would you not just like keep it down a little bit with that? I don't know. Like, why would you buy like a a sporting team? Like a yeah, sporting a team. semi yeah uh, a sporting got to launder your money through something. I well, he had plenty to launder. But wouldn't you just like try to keep it quiet a little bit? I don't know. He's like that's very ostentatious, like show of wealth when that wealth is ill gotten. I don't know if I would be so. It's usually how it goes with this, though, right? No one's I, no one's content to just like let true. it accrue in the bank. That's but, true. But I think that's I think so often we see we've seen that happen with the PPP loan fraud, mm-hmm. the SBA loan fraud, where you know maybe it was they just bought a second house. And then no one came calling. I mean, it was over seven years. And so it's like they bought a third house and they're like, no one's asking. So and then finally you're buying Burt Reynolds car while you're like throwing out the first pitch of your semi-pro baseball team. You're just like, I think we got to figure it out. I got to figure it out. Uh, I mean, uh, I think what's worse is that not worse, obviously, but that Bayless is going to go through the rest of his life being known as the DC solar mope. The mope. Thanks, defense <laughs> attorney. Like, I mean, he's probably like, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna be too nice when I get up there. I'm sorry. And he, no, Bayless is like, I just say yeah, whatever. Beats prison, yeah, right? Beats prison. Why isn't your dad been around? He's the DC mope. Oh Jesus. Yeah. Um. You know, Anna. To your point too. Uh. Sometimes when the scheme starts to unravel, maybe just turn. You know, mm-hmm. as like uh, after the company was served in 2018, Bayless destroyed at least 1,000 identification stickers on these generators, removed another 200 stickers from generators. So, I mean, they obviously knew their plot was unraveling. Yeah, I don't blame him at all for doing that. <laughs> Man. Uh, so of these many luxury items that Karpov has, the government has only, and I say only, seized about $120 million worth of his possessions that'll be used as partial restitution to the victims. Jeez. So, oh my goodness, who gets the Firebird? It was auctioned off. Oh, it was, okay. Yeah. And the proceeds go to the victims mm-hmm. oh. for their like 10 cents on the dollar of what they mm-hmm. lost or whatever. I didn't know if like that's just sitting in the like front lobby of Berkshire Hathaway right now. Yeah, I mean, I mean I that's true. So. Warren Buffett was one of the victims. Yeah. So uh, maybe took, he has it. I think he took like, I think Berkshire got hit with like a, $340 million loss. Whoa. Yeah. Oh, I remember that. And it was like actual like stock market worthy like problem. Yeah, mm-hmm. I remember that. And man, it's uh, it's interesting to see like the pennies and the dollar that they get for some of the things that they buy on these elaborate spending uh, sprees. I would just, I'd be interested if I had known 
Maybe they haven't auctioned it off yet, but I'd just like to sit in on the auction for the baseball team. You know, well, I don't know if do we auction- have a name for the baseball team, by yeah, the way. I didn't, I didn't look into that. All it said. Um, in your opinion, opinions, are these, is 30 years and a $790 million restitution penalty excessive for the crime? Hmm. Pass. Andy. I mean, I don't think he's a danger to society other than swindling. Well, I guess he is because he's swindling people out of their money. But um, as far as it being a deterrent, mm-hmm. I'm not sure I buy that. I mean, people will always maybe look for a quick, but not everybody, but well, uh, you're certain scam artists pandemic. might look mm-hmm. for a quick buck here or there still. So um, I think you have to probably try to send a message, but he's there's sure no way he spends 30 years in no. prison. not a chance no no it's, he's getting the low hand treatment he'll be out in a couple of years yeah. i uh it's just a lot of times when this fraud when we talk about this type of fraud we always say the penalties need to be harsher mm-hmm. and then finally when somebody gets a harsh penalty for me i was just like 30 years seems like a lot i mean it is a lot it's uh anyway his uh team the martinez clippers all right. Yeah. Established in 2018. Uh, not much for a logo, but they were part of the Pacific Association of Professional Baseball Clubs based out of California. Did the team fold? Uh, I don't know if the team folded. Uh, oh, no. The league commissioner has come out saying that he hopes to keep the Clippers as a member of the league, but under new ownership. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they mm-hmm. got some back taxes to pay. <laughs> right. I don't. Uh, I don't see any notable Martinez Clippers, but uh, so list the owner as Uncle Sam now, <laughs> right? You can owner. change it in Wikipedia. No, there you go. It's actually Joe Biden is the owner of this team. <laughs> yeah. hmm, that's what he's been up to. Um, anyway, no uh, notable MLB prospects currently on on the roster. All right, <clears throat> let's move on to our second most popular story this week. And I thought it was really cool that uh, this wound up being the second most popular story. Uh, it's been shared quite a bit, particularly on LinkedIn, where there's been a big conversation about the technology. Uh, shape-shifting micro-robots deliver drugs to cancer cells. A new proof-of-concept study from a global team of researchers used fish, crab, and butterfly-shaped micro-robots to deliver chemotherapy cargo directly to cancer cells. Magnets direct the robots to the cancer cells and a pH change triggers them to open their mouths or their claws and release the drugs. The robots are an example of 4D printed technology, which are 3D printed robots that change shape in response to a certain stimuli. The robots are printed in a pH responsive hydrogel and then suspended in iron oxide nanoparticles, which makes them magnetic. This is one of the first times that micro-robots were steered remotely, and they were steered with a magnet. The fish navigated artificial blood vessels, opened its mouth, and released the chemo cargo, which killed nearby cancer cells. Now, the work is exciting, but next the team will work to make the micro-robots even smaller so they can navigate real blood cells. The video is on IEN.com, and the entire study and supplemental materials are available on ACS Nano. Andy, I just want to stress, they should watch the video because if anything, that alone is incredible. It really, really is. It's wild. Um, I had heard of this this technology where you 
print things that respond to external stimuli. I didn't know it was called 4D printing, but that makes sense, no, I guess. me neither. I thought mm-hmm. when I saw 4D, I thought that meant it smelled. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is exciting, not only obviously from a medical perspective, but just that the advances that this represents for that sort of technology, you would think would have applications, I mean, throughout any number of industries, medical and, and beyond. So it's mm-hmm. it's a really exciting technolo- technological as well as medical advance. Mm-hmm. No, it is. I mean, at this point in our lives, everyone has been touched by cancer in some way. And if you've seen firsthand the devastating effects of chemotherapy, anything that, I mean, battling cancer aside, like anything that can make chemo a little bit more livable Mm -hmm. is great work in my opinion. Yeah. And to your point, I think you can't help but recognize that the story was likely so popular, I think, because everyone has been touched by cancer, either themselves, a loved one. Um, So, you know, any kind of progress, I think, has a monumental impact and it is really exciting. Um, Although it's still only a proof of concept, um, like Andy said, I think that viability takes this anywhere. Like Mm -hmm. so many medical applications, um, you know, difficult treatments that have very, very challenging side effects um it would be great to see if this could be applied to treatments of other diseases but um i would say one of the things i thought of when i saw this and just a note i guess that 2020 was a hard year for some research universities including like harvard and johns hopkins who like saw their donation pool shrink significantly during the pandemic um i think there was a lot vying for philanthropy dollars at that time between like you know people having hardships over food COVID research. I mean, there was a lot of things going on in 2020, especially the early part. So, I mean, even stuff like GoFundMes that for your favorite local business, I think people were just out of pocket shelling out money to things that they normally wouldn't be. And I think some organizations, research organizations and the like sort of suffered from that. Not all, of course. But stories like this, I think, help generate greater interest and just like kind of remind the public what's going on behind the scenes and that a lot of development is happening there. Mm-hmm. You know, you hear it. It's just sort of like very specific against that broader backdrop of cancer research and what that is. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, encouraging people to kind of think about as they're going into the holidays and trying to, you know, dump some money on charity before the end of the year, guys. <laughs> uh, you know, we got some practical innovations happening here. Because so. it feels good, not because it's a write-off. No, I know. But I, but the timing, you know, like yeah. you do, at the same time, you can take advantage of the write-off and also feel good. You're getting hit up by a lot of different uh, different organizations this time of year. So you mm-hmm. just want to file that uh, under there with those. Yeah, think about that. So yeah. many complimentary return address stamps. Yes. Or stickers. Yes. <laughs> so many. So many. Um, <clears throat> no, Anna, to your point... One of the things that I liked about this is as I was uh, writing this up, I was trying to figure out like researchers from which university. And it's Mm -hmm. like a pool of researchers out of Hong Kong, a pool of researchers out of Germany, a pool of researchers out of the States. And it was it was incredible. It was incredible. And I mean, uh, the medical applications aside, this could have applications in pretty much anything that has a liquid medium Mm -hmm. where a micro robot could traverse the liquid medium to deliver, uh, to fix something that's broken, deliver a component. You know, it's, I mean, it's a little far-fetched and we talked about it quite a bit when like nanotechnology first came out and the prospect of it. And then it was ruined by the Transformers uh, franchise. But it's, uh, I think it's pretty cool. I mean, to see the little fish micro robot 
uh, with the chemo drug in it, and they have it lit up under the camera so you can see mm-hmm. it, watch it deliver the drug and kill the cells. And then the little crab, I mean, it doesn't even look real. No. The little cartoon crab with its tiny, perfect, like, semicircle hands, all of a sudden it grabs chemo, or the drug, and, like, crab walks it to the cancer cells. Mm-hmm. I mean, also, whoever designed the micro-robots... If you're really gonna, got an eye. If you're gonna design. do something like this, you got to do it right. The only thing I didn't understand was I didn't see how the butterfly one. I saw how the butterfly robot moved, but I didn't see how that delivered the drug. Whether or not that's a you know an antenna still in development, flew to it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one of the things that's interest or that they also need is they still need better imaging because they can while they can move it in body, they need a better imaging method to track it as it moves in the body. So mm-hmm. still a little bit out, but you know, kind of a, uh, something good on the rise for sure. Yeah. All right. Our most popular story this week, and I'm really going to try to get through saying this company's name with a straight face, but a bakery's sudden closure leaves 200 jobless in November, 2019, the muffin ma'am, ma'am with an M a baked goods manufacturer announced a new 100,000 square foot bakery plant in Lawrence, South Carolina. Two years later, on November 9th, 2021, the plant abruptly closed, and its more than 200 workers found out by a sign on the plant doors. The note said the plant was closed because the bank had frozen the Muffin Man's assets, Muffin Ma'am's assets and account. It's devastating. But what makes it worse is that on the previous day, the company told employees that the plant would close, but not until January 7th. The company said it was crushed by COVID with initial lockdowns hurting revenue, followed by skilled labor problems and supply chain disruptions. Muffin Ma'am owes almost $6 million to 189 creditors with assets of less than $50,000. I missed a zero. Andy, your thoughts on the incredibly unsolvent situation that Muffin Ma'am finds itself in? Um, so this company was was pinning their difficulties on the same things that uh, every other business is facing, mm-hmm. basically. Um, and not every other business is uh, basically shutting down on 24 hours notice. So I have a hard time kind of buying that. Um, a lot of things that we talk about here, you know, I'm talking as a reporter. So I've done some research on it. Maybe I have a little experience with it, but I'm not, I'm not a roboticist. I'm not a professional. I'm not an expert. Mm-hmm. I'm just, you know, trying to, to do my best here. So you're this, not a muffin ma'am that's yourself. Right. Yep. That's yeah. right. But I do have some experience with this. So I can tell you that when a business says, okay, we're going to wind things down, declare bankruptcy, restructure, and a bank says, no, forget that, you're done, uh, there's a lot more going on than just the standard difficulties that every other business is facing. Mm-hmm. So I can tell you that for sure. Yeah. I mean, from quite personal experience. That's right. Yeah. Um, Anna, do you know the muffin ma'am? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Why? Uh, and are you disappointed <laughs> that said muffin ma'am and other companies that are going under just kind of fly that COVID-19 flag and uh, as a sort of catch-all for their financial problems. I'm glad that was a multi-point question. <laughs> <laughs> but first, 
do I know? Do I know? No. Nope. Uh, <laughs> no, I was kind of with Andy on this, though. Like, when they said um, the in- they were hurt by the initial lockdowns, like, how long were those really f- until food manufacturers became labeled essential? That was very quick. A couple of weeks. A couple mm-hmm. of weeks. Um, and then weren't we all, like, carving up after that? So... I feel like a muffin manufacturer would have been better positioned than most businesses. For we navigating. just talked about how food demand has just gone through the roof because yeah. nobody was going anywhere. Like you're just, you're just having stuff at home. Yeah. Personally, mm-hmm. I was eating a ton of muffins mm-hmm. as were my children. And I, I was eating a lot of dessert cakes and brownies. The other items they specialized in. Yes. Mm-hmm. But this analysis is not helpful for me, but um, the workers are out of the job here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the timing of this obviously could be worse for them. Um, but part of me wonders if this story was so heavily trafficked because people were like, jobless? Workers? Where? Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. send me your application. I, you know, like, we read about that gun, or we talked about that gun maker um, recently who was planning to shut down yes. a bunch of neighboring local businesses were trying to sort of solicit the, the workforce via road signs and things. Um I think maybe our industry now views these plant closure type stories in a completely different context. I mean, we, we these this has been happening for years and years, right? Mm-hmm. But like now it's more an issue of like, why did this happen? Where are these highly skilled workers going? I think, I mean, there was a time where we would see a plant closure story and everyone's like, mm, that's sad, that yeah, sucks, the, the economy or whatever, yeah, you know? Or the town's going to die. Yeah, or the town's going to die. And then, mm-hmm. um, and and those poor workers, how are they going to find jobs? And now it's sort of flipped on its ear a little bit. Um, so it does wonder, make me wonder, like, what was motivating so many people who saw the story mm-hmm. to view it? Um, what, what were they thinking about when they did? I think part of it is the sign on the door. Because there's no greater kick in the teeth than showing up to work on Monday or Tuesday and just being like, oh, what is it a new policy about being able to wear jeans? No, it's all over. It's all over. Yeah, you could have sent it to me in an email, you know? That's yeah, gutless. Right? So gutless. It man. is like, like uh, it, um, it's happened before locally where a local restaurant shut down the old school ground round, shut down with just a sign on the door. And it's still like Madison legend. It's because it's so. The pine cone just did that. Yeah, the pine. Yeah, the pine oh, they cone just did put that. up a sign. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ooh. they put up with some quite the sign. Tone deaf political messaging for the area. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, Jeez. for the area that was shut down by local media. Luckily, that wasn't covered nearly as much as that meme. Um, <clears throat> troubling, but yeah, it does sound like a perfect storm of events. And one of the things that I've found interesting is that so in April 2020, Muffin Man reportedly received $943.5 million in PPP fund money. Wait, say that number again. Am I reading that? No, sorry, uh, $943,000. That's better. That's way better. (laughs) Yep, sorry, this one, that one's a period. It's not a comma. Here's a billion dollars for your muffin business. (laughs) Yeah, okay, not a billion, but they received a million dollars in April, and they're closing in November. Uh, the following year. Something sounds mismanaged yes. potentially here. Yeah. It's almost like they're using something to cover for something else. Like, Well, and $50,000 in assets, though, so that means they like don't own their building. They don't own probably a lot of their equipment. Either, no, even. probably so that's, that's rough. What I, so to your point, Anna, about you know the run on skilled labor, a lot of these uh, jobs, according to Glassdoor, were workers that were making like 10 to $15 an hour, uh, some bakers, uh, machine tending, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I, to me, it just felt like a lot of these workers were likely living paycheck to paycheck. And now they're not going to receive their last check, let alone any vacation time or other money that they were owed coming right into the holiday season. Not that if it was any other season, it would be better. Yeah. But a lot of these people thought that they had at least until Jan 7 to mm-hmm. figure it out. And now the rug's been completely taken out from underneath. Yeah. Them. And it's just terrible. What really bugged me about that is so the muffin ma'am released a statement. And I know that I joked last week or the week before about the random statement generator Mm -hmm. that they're just using AI to put out this tone deaf comments. But uh, Muffin Ma'am comes out and says, we're confident the hardworking and talented associates of the Muffin Ma'am will prove to be a valuable resource for other firms in the upstate of South Carolina that have more successfully navigated the many challenges of this pandemic. We truly wish each and every employee of each and every one of our employees and their families the very best. So they came out and said, like, well, hopefully you can catch on with somebody that did it better, huh? Mm-hmm. Good luck to you. Yeah, I'm sure that all these people are going to take those best wishes and tell you to shove them. But yeah. Don't, ma- ma'am. <laughs> don't worry. They said they're sorry-ish, and they want nothing but the best for us. I guess. Which mm-hmm. is why... They completely <laughs> overturned our life in a single night. Just before Thanksgiving. And yeah. I know that people are curious, but it turns out that the Muffin Ma'am does not live on Drury Lane. No one was curious. It's actually though. Hunter Industrial Park Road. <laughs> is that is that not in the famous uh, nursery rhyme? No. That's not the words? Yeah. The what Muffin a- Man who lives on Hunter Industrial Park Road. <laughs> Yeah, that one. Yeah, oh. yeah. Are there any more words to it besides that one line? I can't remember anything besides that. No, it's that's the whole it's, song. Do you know him? And then Nippy. the one on Hunter Industrial Road Park. <laughs> and Road. then no one responds, and then the person just leaves. Yeah. Do you know him? Yeah. All right. Moving on. All right then. Yep. Yeah. Uh, oh, Drew. See, it was a location problem. Eric, our producer, how would we know? Says, yeah, yeah, Drury Lane's in the UK, and uh, I mean that must be why the Muffin Man didn't work. And why we didn't know. Him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've never been to Drury Lane. No, in Sussex, England. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One day, guys, you know, over that holiday break, bucket list. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Field trip. We go pull some uh, old dessert cakes out of the Muffin Ma'am freezer and uh, head ourselves overseas. It's going to be a beautiful day. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, let's move on to In Case You Missed It. Anna, Hmm. what was your In Case You Missed It, which I forgot to say are stories that were less popular (laughs) with our readership, but, you know, still stand to make a big impact on the industry going forward. What do you have for us this week? Sure. So we have a little update on the UAW. Um, okay. The UAW suffered a rather humiliating public censure last year when after so many indictments on corruption related charges amongst its leaders and associates, a settlement with federal prosecutors required the appointment of a monitor mm. to oversee the UAW's activities for six years. So as in like you need a babysitter. Yeah. Um, So a year in, the monitor, who is a former federal prosecutor, has issued his first report and basically says that he has 15 open investigations underway currently and that the toxic culture, his words, that plagued the UAW in the past is still there. Mm. So um, UAW pointed to some of the positive changes the union has made, including the establishment of an ethics hotline. (laughs) That's not a good sign. 
Mm -hmm. Um, And the hiring of a new ethics officer. Um, But the monitor is saying that the organization hasn't done enough to respond to the repeated warnings about the pressing need to transform its culture. So my favorite part of the story was when he said um, his report shouldn't take away from, quote, the meaningful changes that have occurred since the government started putting former UAW officials in prison. Mm -hmm. So I take that statement as a very backhanded compliment on the UAW's progress that gives no credit whatsoever to the UAW itself. So um, my feelings on this were mixed. It was disappointing that this toxic culture is so prevalent. Um, I don't believe that UAW organizational leaders are any more inherently corrupt than anybody else. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess the overall story to me speaks to how entrenched a toxic culture can be. Mm-hmm. And how it impacts like every level of an organization and how difficult it can be to undo like years and years of this. It's like having a rotten foundation on your house, you know, like you can make as many cosmetic fixes as you want, but you're not getting at the root of that problem. So um, I think it's a good lesson to be like sort of cautious and careful. People talk about culture change and, you know, managing a business culture. And it's sort of like one of those generic things that you talk about but mm-hmm. i mean this is a real thing like this can easily get out of control especially when you have like employees that you will maybe they're a high performer you know maybe they're an executive and you kind of let them run wild and do their own thing it sets a bad precedent um i think it speaks this story speaks to the danger of like allowing that kind of culture to breed because UAW is really having a hard time like climbing their way out of this. Mm-hmm. So anyway, if you didn't see that story, uh, that's where they're at. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's not a better update, but uh, Andy, what is the saying? Uh, meet the new boss. Same as the old boss. That is that famous song by the who. Yes. Oh, um, right the, uh, I mean, I feel like I've beaten this into the ground this episode in particular about this surge in labor activism mm-hmm. amid this, uh, tight labor market and COVID and all that. And uh, that includes the UAW, which just resolved uh, its uh, its strike at the Deere plant in Illinois, mm-hmm. the John Deere plant. Um, and so they're having this, this moment and just to see it undermined here by this continued clumsy corruption is, like you said, just disappointing at mm-hmm. best and really irritating at worst. Yeah, I agree. And the fact that the monitor is essentially a person in an office with a leave a note box on the outside. Yeah. <laughs> Um, he just checks the hotline. Yeah. How do you, he can take disciplinary action actually. Oh, okay. So he's more than just like a figurehead. He's got some responsibilities. And so he is actively investigating as well as overseeing. And he has all kinds of rights to like investigate in internal members and leaders and all that stuff. So, okay. So, you know, not just a court, court appointed babysitter in, in title. Correct. Yeah. Um, but if your former leadership is all being publicly shamed and their assets sold. Mm-hmm. If that's not enough to change your behavior, I don't know what is other than just cleaning house. Yeah. I mean, the good news is that like their new president, Ray Curry has, um, he was accused of ma- of taking football, free football tickets or something like yeah. very minor. And he was exonerated of that internal and internally. Um, I think he's got a pretty clean record, um, so hopefully he will help. Okay, okay, all right. Uh, moving, moving on to my. In case you missed it this week, uh, my. In case you missed it, was a segment on engineering by design, the new show that we brought back two weeks ago, and then you know we got back to it this week. Um, one of the stories in that show uh, 
was space launch startup fires a prototype projectile. Now, I found this interesting because Space Launch is a company that wants to throw things into space. Spin launch. Spin launch. Oh, it wants to spin them into space. Yeah. And don't did I say spin launch? You said space launch. Oh, space launch. My bad. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Uh, Spin launch just took a big step forward. On October 22nd, the company held the first test flight of its suborbital accelerator at Spaceport America. See, I got a lot of spins and spaces going here. I get you. Spaceport America is in New Mexico. The launch system uses kinetic energy with a vacuum-sealed centrifuge to spin a projectile several times the speed of sound before it is released. The suborbital accelerator is capable of reaching 800 to 5,000 miles per hour. And it's primarily a test bed for the orbital launch system, the L100-100 orbital mass accelerator. During this test, the accelerator deployed a test vehicle at supersonic speeds and then recovered the reusable flight vehicle prototype. Now, all of this is exciting because it comes down to cost. It's really expensive to go into space. And if the L100 works, it could reduce the fuel required to reach orbit by four times, reduce cost by a multiple of 10, and offer the ability to launch multiple times per day. I found this particularly interesting because, and they've received hundreds of millions of dollars in uh, funding. Well, not hundreds, a hundred million dollars in funding um, because they have a lower cost alternative to what SpaceX and Mm -hmm. Blue Origin and other commercial space companies are offering. But one of the things that also made me think think about, and Andy, you're going to get to this a little bit and you're in case you missed it, is, you know, we're already having a problem with uh, garbage in space. And I don't know that we need to make it easier and more, uh, you know, uh, accessible. Yeah. But that was going to, making it more cluttered up there was going to happen probably regardless of whether there was this cool new catapult to throw stuff up there. Yeah, that's true. I don't want that to be lost in this, is that you really have to check out this video because they have the entire test caught, or they filmed the entire test. And when you hear this thing get up to speed, it is just you know you're dealing with something powerful and a touch scary. It was one of those where I was like really happy that the test went well. <laughs> Anna, your thoughts on spinning things really fast into space. And firing them out a little shoot. <laughs> yeah. So are there limitations at all? Does anyone know about like what type of product or item that, that can go in this centrifuge? Like, I want them to just fire me to the office every day. Yeah, like can a, <laughs> could they eventually put a person in? I know. I wouldn't way? recommend that. I don't think so. <laughs> it's a tiny little missile shaped projectile that spins. I mean, if you uh, look at a photo of this thing, it is just a circle with a tube towards space. So these are satellites. They want. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, satellites, satellites and that's it. Well, satellites and other. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it gets a little safer, and uh, you huck a human up there. I don't know. I mean, long term, maybe. Yeah, I I would never do that, but you oh, know, I don't even. Goodness. I didn't even think about that. Like, uh, okay, we actually cut down the flight time to Mars to get you. Uh, I don't know. I think if you start spinning that fast, maybe you turn to some sort of liquid. <clears throat> maybe something might happen with your insides. <laughs> <laughs> Just like he made it there, we didn't really think it through. Yeah, something is going on with David's brain. Yeah, he's got uh, some weird sort of Mars brain. Yeah, he's happening. actually. Thinking, lo- like logically, something's gone horribly, horribly awry. Um, he changed his mind on the EV tall. <laughs> <laughs> never, never, never. No, 
I'm flying that little quadcopter. Um, uh, Andy, your thoughts on, uh, would you allow yourself to be spun at 5,000 miles per hour and launched into space? I mean, do you ever go, uh, at six flags, do you ever go on that thing where they spin you around real fast? Yeah. Gravitron. But that's like, yeah, that was one of the only things I liked. So I feel like I could oh, get behind this. You liked nice. Gravitron? Oh yeah. yeah. Is I mean, and that's like for us, it was definitely a, a county fair chocolate fest deal. You know where you try like spinning upside down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I was uh, I was a cowardly middle schooler, so I like the little spinny thing that puts you one foot off the ground rather than the cool rides that flip you all over. The scrambler. Yeah. You like the scrambler? <laughs> Not this really. This sounds like the real scrambler, man. Yeah. You got in this thing, you're scrambled. I I would hate. <laughs> to think about how I would not be able to hang in the Gravitron now. Like it's probably it's been physics. should be all right. It's probably been at least like 15 years. And I feel like, yeah. Oh man, I love this ride. And I just come out heaving. <laughs> come out heaving. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> one other uh, thing that was pretty cool is that when I talk about them raising $110 million, these are not just, uh, you know, these are powerhouses. Like I think it was Airbus and uh, what was the other Google that has bought into it. Um, and in terms of an economic impact of the 110 million that they've raised, about 40 million is going into building the new uh, Statue of Liberty pedestal-sized <laughs> accelerator in the desert. Um, all right, enough about throwing things into space. The most like American approach to technology. Just like I bet we could just throw it up there. Let's there just hook it. Yep. Yeah. That's some Uncle Rico, man. <laughs> Think I can throw this football over there in mountains? <laughs> um, Andy, what's your in case you missed it this week? Uh, uh, so there's not a, a shortage of space junk mm-hmm. orbiting around, as we briefly mentioned here. Um, it gets worse uh, when Russia, in a apparently ill-advised missile test, fires a weapon into space, blows up an old satellite, scatters debris all over and so the astronauts on the international space station have to basically hunker down and hope they don't get blown out of the sky oh my god Mm. so what happens uh so they do this this missile test and uh so the state department uh says the old satellite was splintered into 1500 larger pieces and tiny debris that you can't see numbering in the hundreds of thousands um and it's all traveling at seventeen, more than 17,000 miles an hour. So at that speed, a speck of paint is enough to really uh, do some damage. Oh, and obviously, geez. if one of these larger things uh, gets in the way, that's trouble too. Um, so NASA has said that the astronauts, including two Russian cosmonauts aboard the space station, they were in the most danger right away, but they're still not out of the woods. And these parts they're just up there floating around in orbit this is a problem that's going to last for years Mm. uh they moved the space station after a 2007 test a similar one by china um and uh it's it's just um the the u.s does these things too Mm -hmm. it's just that it's a question of how close you're firing things to the international space station so um if i recall correctly russia's satellite that they blew up was like 40 miles or something above it and the u.s does their tests apparently much lower Mm. so it doesn't threaten their own astronauts right um i should note that russia confirmed that the test destroyed a defunct satellite but they said that it was carried out with quote surgical precision and Hmm. that it did not and will not 
pose a danger to space activities. Um, I guess we'll oh, okay. uh, we'll have to wait and see on that we one. We were wrong about that then. Hmm. Yeah, the, Everybody else was wrong. Most claustrophobic and scary story of the week. That's great. Um, Anna, it, oh, go ahead. It's I should say uh, it, it sounds like nothing catastrophic has happened mm-hmm. as of uh, our taping here. So that's uh, some good news out of this anyway. So you say it was 40 miles away. How is it that we've had two or three different situations that have threatened the International Space Station? Is my understanding of the vastness of space flawed? <laughs> I mean, probably yours and mine both. Yeah. But <laughs> that was but, exactly my thought too. Like, isn't space like gigantic? Yeah. Why? Like, why that one? Oh, I mean, shoot it somewhere. Low, else. low Earth is- orbit apparently is a little more limited than uh, than we might suspect. Okay. I just uh, I don't even know where to. Go with that. Other than you know, we talk about uh, the problems with SpaceX's uh, toilet the other week, mm-hmm. and how that is—I mean, now comparatively nothing when you're fearing a would you say a speck of paint that could uh, go rifling through it? Yeah, seventeen thousand yeah, miles an hour. That SpaceX story was more funny than anything to imagine. Like mm-hmm. if that problem occurred with people who spend five million dollars or whatever on a ticket. Mm-hmm. And then their toilet doesn't work. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, is basically, basically the story was, it's a threat to a multinational space team and Russia said, no, it was fine. Yeah. We said surgical precision. Yeah. So they meant, we did exactly what we wanted. Yeah. To. They meant to do that. That's right. Okay, cool. I mean, um, you said they had two on the space station as well. <clears throat> yes. Wow. It's hard for us globally to share space. It's just, you know. Right. We, we, we couldn't like share Christmas dinner. You know what I mean? Like we, it's hard for us to share space. I need, I like a, uh, I like a scale model or some sort of diorama Mm -hmm. just to understand because I'm picturing again, the little blue marble and then everything else around it. Right. And the international space station being like the tiniest, tiniest speck in that. Yeah. Yeah. Like the lone car in like a closed mall, you know? And yet they still strike the spot next to it. Right. Like, is how I imagine it. Very tenuous grasp on these sorts of things, apparently. We should not be talking about space, either one of us. No, I don't think. no, 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 no. I'll have to get some sort of anyone else. To know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, before we get out of here this week, uh, let's move on to our final thoughts. Um, Andy, I'd like to start with you. What do you have for us for your final thought this week? Um, I wanted to do this story actually, and in case you missed it, but, uh, I thought it was, uh, maybe less, uh, less manufacturing-y than, than we would like for that segment. So I wanted to point to our taste test video of Arby's brand vodka that we ran (laughs) this week. Um, just in case any of our listeners were looking for, uh, maybe a a Bloody Mary pick me up on uh, Thanksgiving afternoon, (laughs) maybe the next morning, what have you, uh, if you're in a state where that's being distributed maybe look into that but are uh, you suggesting people buy that uh i thought it was good <sighs> did you try it in a bloody mary or no well also, you I just don't, took I don't a care shot of Marys. you just took a shot of it david that's why I you t- don't like it well no i've had shots of great vodkas great vodkas where you take the shot and you're like i feel great tonight's gonna be awesome and the shot of that one was fire death bad i need to leave I need Ouchie. to lie down. Yeah. The, the video is fun, but also <laughs> just as we are not astrophysicists, we are not vodka sommeliers Mm-mm, either. No. So, 
Maybe despite, take what we say with a grain of salt. Yeah, despite the excessive Gotta try it for yourself. Of, like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we were trying. Oh, yeah. We're going through the paces. Oh, yeah, we're journalists. Don't make a vodka that tastes like a tequila. That's just my takeaway. <laughs> I mean, uh, my friends and family have found quite a lot of pleasure watching my facial expressions as I struggle through it. There you go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Did you ever get to the, if you stay through the end of the video, did you ever get to the bottom of that beaver sauce? I don't know what that was. I didn't like look, I didn't do any like follow-up research as to why it was called that or what it was containing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know. S- spicy horseradish, right? I guess. Okay. A horseradish beaver sauce. Just be like a beaver brand. Yeah. yeah. I do enjoy our taste test series. And that was one, I especially like it when we have kind of polar opposite uh, takes on different things. You know, when we try the mac and cheese ice cream and it's sort of universally just, why does this exist? Um, I like it when we have a panel of 12 people and, you know, we can't agree. Yeah. Holy cow. Okay, guys. Beaverton Foods has an entire line of beaver brand sauces. Oh. Jalapeno mustard. Cream horseradish. There's all kinds of stuff on here. Cranberry mustard. I got to say, I like the horseradish. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Beavertonfoods.com. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. If uh, one of you guys gets me in the secret Santa. Just just a clean sweep of (laughs) beavertonfoods.com. Yeah. Beaver sauce. Into a gift bag. Um, My final thought this week is a a similar recommendation, but uh, for something outside of our portfolio. I recently started listening to the Hooked podcast, and it tells the story of Tony Hathaway, a design engineer at Boeing who became addicted to OxyContin after he injured his back and then robbed 30 banks in a single year. And it is an incredible story, and Tony is a part of it, bringing the uh, interviewer to the different banks that he robbed. It actually starts, he brings them to... Uh, he wants to bring him to, I think, the last bank that he robbed, and it's not there anymore. And uh, it's so far, I'm not through the entire thing, but it is a very compelling story of you know how anyone in any position can kind of get uh, gripped by opiates. And, uh, and I mean, this person transitioning into a rather successful, although brief, stint in crime. Uh, but uh, if you're into podcasts, that might be one to check out. Um, Anna, what's your final thought this week? Honey mustard mayonnaise they also have. <laughs> yes. Just order. See how it says, like, add, add to, to cart. There you go. Add all of them to carts. Select need, all. It should be a select yeah. all. They don't have that option. <laughs> select all. Add to cart. <laughs> right? I want the entire Beaver Brands line. I want all of it. Mm-hmm. They, have they do have one piece of merch. It's a hoodie. Mm-hmm. It's got a beaver's face on it. <laughs> yeah, it kind of looks like they uh, ripped off the Bayside Tigers and put a beaver there. Yeah, but I like it. That sounds incredible, yeah. actually. It's out of stock. Sorry. Supply chain crisis, Eric. Man, supply chain crisis grips beaver hoodies. Grips beaverton foods. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> no! What have you done? Um, Anna... Outside of beaver products. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, this is going to be a hot take, but you guys are going to know why I'm taking it. Uh, I would like to return my push button start vehicle for a regular vehicle, please, because I can never find my keys. Because I never have to put them in the ignition. So they're constantly somewhere else. And mm-hmm. I would like that problem to stop. Because Your car I lost- can find them, apparently. I guess. I don't know. I lost my keys this week, and it was very stressful 
for the entire office because I made a huge deal about it. Well, it's, so, a, it, it's not a huge deal. You can't leave, like I start leave. your car. Yeah, yeah, I like yeah. literally could not leave. Yeah. Um, so that was dumb. But I found them in the end and I just, I want my old keys back. I want an ignition with the key goes in and then I, I just take them out when I'm I, done. I think, and again, I had mentioned how this is a first world problem, but now it that is. I have the key fob, yeah. when I get into the old Yaris that I still need to like take the time to get the keys out of my pocket and put Ooh. them in the ignition. I just like, I'm upset because I'm not already playing with the radio. Uh, but I think where you go wrong is you need, you just go single fob and that's where you go wrong. You need a couple of keys on that chain. I do have a single fob and it's constantly like, it, yeah, I mean, it's getting like lost in the bottom of my purse or I'm like, is it in the cup holder? Is it? I so I need a better system. It's mm-hmm. not my vehicle's fault. I'm lashing out at my vehicle. I'm sorry, yeah. to auto designers, you're not doing anything wrong. This is a me problem, but I'm just sort of grinding gears right now. But I mean, when, uh, the first time I found out how expensive fobs were. <laughs> They're expensive. And uh, difficult to replace. And then when you borrow a car from another single fob person, it's just like... I'm going to lose this. I know. It's easily lost. Yeah. It's as soon as you like, cause you have it, you just drop it in a cup holder. And luckily, hopefully one of the cars is, uh, you know, they recognize that the fob's still in. And so you can't, mm-hmm. uh, uh, lock it. Um, that's one that has saved me a couple of times. Oh God. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So if you have any sort of, um, tchotchke or, you know, exotic keychain, please mail that to 199 East Badger Suite 100. Uh-huh. So that way uh, we can get some janitor keys going for Anna here. I need a keychain and I need some beet horseradish if you're on the Beaverton <laughs> yeah. Foods website. I mean, it sounds like they're all a winner. Uh <laughs> Zal, do you go key or do you go fob? I, I still have the key, but every time I travel somewhere and have to rent a car, inevitably they give me the fob. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm sure for the impartial observer watching me struggle with that technology is just high <laughs> comedy. Yeah, I mean, getting j- just furious in a Safeway parking lot in Phoenix. I just, yeah, that's that's entertainment for the whole family. <laughs> just fob problems. Yeah, I think the fob problems. Cool, yeah, one of the interesting parts Anna is that like not only did you lose your key but you had already lost your mm, spare key we don't have to tell the whole a story <laughs> we don't have to do all of that I just in the end the keys were found and that's the important part yes yes and it was I was <clears throat> you know you watch so many of those detective mo- or, uh, shows where you try to figure it out mm-hmm. so I'm out there trying to picture like alright she gets out of the car yeah and she goes to put it in her pocket, but she throws it across the parking lot. So I clearly got to go and look on the other side in the leaves. And then I'm just like pawing yeah. through leaves. Key spatter analysis you have to do. That's yeah. right. It is. It's like it's slowing down in my mind where I'm like, <laughs> I see you move and it just slowly goes like. <laughs> and then, you know, we get the people who are helping from the company next door. And, that you know, the guy comes out and he's like, hey, are we all right here? Are we OK? We find it. We're on our we're on all fours under a car, sir. We're clearly we not fine. It. We're clearly yeah. not uh, fine. Yeah, excuse me. I'm like scraping behind a tire. No. Um, <laughs> but you know, thank you for helping. And he's just like, Oh, you need some help? No. Okay. Yeah. Cool. See ya. Yeah. This is a high drama. My apologies to everyone who's involved. All right. Keep those fobs tucked in your pockets, guys. Um, all right, before we get out of here, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. 
To email the podcast, you can reach us at Andy, Anna, or David at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. We still have some t-shirts left, so if you want one of those, reach out. And if you want to subscribe to any of our daily or weekly newsletters, we'll make sure that you get the podcast in your inbox first. All right. Andy, before we get out of here, thank you very much for uh, stepping in late notice. Always a pleasure. Really appreciate it. Uh, So for Andy, Anna, and Jeff, we sort of miss you. I'm David Manti, and this is the Today in Manufacturing podcast. We'll see you next week. We do miss you, Jeff. We do. Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast.